Welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. You've got two for the price of one. Um, it's Sierra here as well as Ted. Um, and we are here for our series on the clean energy crash course. Um, and today we're really treating the conversation as sort of an introduction, a 101 to what's happening in the realm of sustainability and solutions in the midst of climate change. And so the context is like, you know, you meet someone on a plane and dad, Ted, what's going on with that? So we're gonna dive into that. Um, and thank you for those of you tuning in. I'm delighted to be here actually tuning in from Santa Fe, New Mexico at the moment. Um, and dad, you're back in California, but you've just flown in from New York. Um, and it sounds like you were able to just barely escape the smoke that's breaking records right now um, coming in from the north, from Canada. Can you, you know, what the heck is going on there? Yeah, well, first off, Sierra, it's great to be here with you. My my star daughter and these crash courses have been really fun. I think we've, I think we've done five or six on a very variety of topics. and. And today we thought we'd just sort of bounce around a little bit, but starting off with the fires and, you know, clearly climate change is now climate crisis. You know, we're, we're, we're really past this notion of that the things may change in the future. And we're living with uh, the repercussions now of um, the highest uh, levels of CO2 in the atmosphere that we've had, um, you know, in a million years. In fact, it, it, we just hit 424 parts per million, that's measured in the top of the peaks, Mauna Loa, Mauna Loa and in Hawaii, 424 parts per million, that's 50% higher than the beginning of uh, industrial time. So it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy time. And I, I did fly to New York about eight days ago. And as you flew in, the whole East Coast is shrouded uh, with smoke from the fires in Canada and the winds blowing down the smoke from Canada. and crazy to think that Nova Scotia is on fire. You know, you think of the Maritimes as being lush and moist and, uh, but to think of the, the fire is burning out of control, out of control there. Um, and what happened is you're exactly right. What happened yesterday is that the, the, the winds were such that New York um, received just an even more intense dosage of this smoke. In fact, I think it's on the news that New York had the worst air quality in the world, right? New York had the worst, had a worser air quality yesterday than San Francisco did uh, a couple of years ago when the fires were ravaged uh, Northern California. So, so we're just seeing that the repercussions of, of, of climate change. Oh, somebody said, I love this. I think I, Somebody said this on a poster on the plane when I was flying back and said, we don't want to import smoke from Canada. We want to import some of that good Canadian beer, you know, <laughs> so, but, but we're getting stuck. We're getting stuck with all of this smoke. Um, so I think it's clear. I mean, everybody now there's the Yale University as the Center for Climate Change Communications, Anthony Lazarowitz's shop there. And they just came out with a big survey and you know, the vast majority of Americans say yes climate change is happening uh, most of us uh, are stubborn 
we don't we don't want to we don't want to give up and say there's nothing that can be done. I think there's only about two percent of the people surveyed said that there's nothing that could be done at this point. So most of us are optimistic and realize that 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 we need to need need to make dramatic changes. But here we are. A lot of scientists have been talking about this for years. Uh, Al Gore was really raised a lot of awareness, but now that's decades ago that he did that. And here we are now worldwide experiencing climate weirding, or as I said, the climate crisis. Right. And so you talked about 422 parts per million. Was that the number you mentioned? Well, it's actually, it's 424. And you remember, you remember that Bill McKibben, uh, my friend Bill McKibben, you know, who, who runs something called 350.org, uh, that 350 was what a climate scientists thought would be the maximum concentration, that's 350 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. That's what most climate scientists thought would be the maximum before things got really out of control. And now here we are at 424 and climbing. We've been climbing for the, for the past several years. So that's a key threshold and, and boundary that we're currently breaking, and yet... We remain optimistic somehow. Um, I think, you know, the flip side of all of this global overwhelm um, that we're feeling, that we're seeing, is that there is also this explosion of solutions and uh, resilience and, you know, looking at um, earth solutions, looking at um, technologies, new discoveries, um, new ways of collaborating. So what is, would you say is sort of the most exciting silver lining in the midst of this global weirding, which we all know feels super depressing and um, insurmountable at times, but what can pick us up out of that rut? Yeah, and I, I think, unfortunately, uh, as a society, a global society, I guess things have to get really bad before they get better. And, you know, people have been saying that, you know, it's going to take a forest fire until you have this new growth that comes in. And it's frustrating to watch how bad that it's become. But it's yeah. gotten so bad that everybody realizes that it's so bad. And now we're starting to, we're really starting to make changes. I, I'm insanely optimistic, you know, for, oh, just like you said, there we have all the solutions. That, that, right. There's no, I was listening to a Dave Roberts podcast, great guy. And, you know, he said the same thing. We have all the solutions. Yes, we have to scale them up. And some of them are not cost effective yet. They will be as they scale up and as the technology matures, as you said. But, uh, you know, our listeners should rest assured we have all of the solutions. Uh, and that's not just in the energy space. It's also in the water space and it's in the agriculture space. I mean, you know, we are we're abundant in solutions. We're abundant in creative thinkers. I. I had Andrew McAllister, California Energy Commissioner, uh, California Energy Commission Commissioner on the podcast, and he was just praising all the bright minds that are at work. And, and there are, there's bright minds around the world at work to come up with new ways of doing things, uh, new, even like new refrigerants, you know, in, in heat pump systems and in chillers that are, that are not going to damage the ozone layer, uh, which is something that we, we've sort of been, that, that's an issue that's been overshadowed. But, but again, there are there's just a, an abundance of solutions. So remember, I am a passenger on a plane next to you, and I've been living under a rock. Okay, so can you just 
list out for me, you know, maybe starting with the most exciting technology or, or um, renewable energy source or, or series of solutions and just give me the super high level, you know, cause I hear solar sort of getting quite a buzz. Um, and then I'm seeing these giant wind turbines coming right out of the ocean. So can you just help me understand sort of at a very high level, what are sort of, what are, what is the laundry list of solutions that we're looking at? Yeah, I, I think it kind of helps me when I think about energy and the environment to break, to break the issue into maybe three parts. Okay. And the electricity sector is, is, a, is always been about a third of, of global emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, places like California, we're, we're a lot less than a third because we've cleaned up our grid. But, but I'll talk about that in a second. But the, but the electricity sector, there is so much going on right now. And, and we'll get into some of the or how we power our devices. Um, well, then you get into, yeah, that's uh, that's powering our devices. It's our lighting. It's our heating. I mean, cooling or our cars. It's right now. It's our cars. Another one. Another third of here is mobility is transportation. And, you know, we've relied on oil for 99 percent of our transportation energy for the past I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. And we'll talk about the explosion of EVs. They're just fun to drive. It's just a better technology, better technology. And the, really the tougher sector, right? the last third is sort of energy used in our buildings and used in our industries. And so there's, there, there's but even within industry, you know, there's now there's a whole movement to green steel making, right? How, you know, making steel in, in, in a green way. So, but I, w- I want to go back to the electricity just for a second, because, uh, that's I one am, third. I am so one third excited. of the demand and one third of the impact. Would you say? Yes, I would say generally. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And um, but but on the electricity side, what really is exciting me is is offshore wind. And you mm-hmm. know, there's um, a professor in Stanford, Mark Jacobson. He was also on our podcast, and he's got something called the Solutions Project. And he's now he's now developed carbon-free solutions plans for like 115 countries, right? And, and in every case, he's, he's figured out how do you get there? And you're basically, you're, you're, you're adding up, you know, all sorts of renewable resources, onshore wind, solar, different kinds of solar, community solar, household solar, utility-scale solar, hydropower, geothermal power, biomass energy. But the very biggest source of energy that that Mark would say uh, is is giving him reason to be confident that we can get through this is offshore wind. Hmm. The reality is is that onshore wind, the wind only blows part of the time. You know, we have these great passes here in California. You know, his, everybody's seen the pictures of the San Gregorio Pass near Palm Desert, the Altamont Pass up in the, near the Bay Area, the Hatchapi Pass in between. These are areas where the wind is just rushing through in the morning and rushing through in the evening, but really nothing's happening in the middle of the day. Nothing's happening at night. Uh, it turns out that in the middle of the country, uh, in our country out in the Great Plains, the wind is blowing at night a lot. And so we, there's a lot of wind development in Iowa and places, the Dakotas. I flew over a lot of turbines yesterday. You could look down and see them. But the wind is only basically blowing at night in a significant way. But offshore wind, when you get a few miles offshore and you get a several hundred feet up into the air, it's blowing all the time. So we, we're looking at a situation where 
it may well be that about 60% of global energy comes from offshore wind in the not too distant future. And these wind turbines are being built as fast as, the, as they can. And another big development related to that is that, you know, it used to be that you could only put offshore wind in places where you've got a continental shelf or you're in the North Sea around the UK, um, in, in the United Kingdom, in Europe. You know, those are areas where the waters are, are relatively shallow, um, you know, less than a couple hundred feet deep. And so you can actually take a wind turbine, you can have a tower, just like an offshore oil rig, you can have a, you know, it's fixed to the sea bottom. But as I've written about in a lot of our newsletters, there's these new, this new floating technology. And everybody thought that was crazy. Can you imagine floating a wind, a wind turbine that's like, you know, 100 and something feet tall? How do you do that and tethering it to the seafloor? But that is now happening all over the world. And in California, we've just leased out, you know, three big areas for offshore wind. Uh, and it will all be floating wind technology. So there is, there's just so much going on in that, in that, with that offshore wind. And of course, you know, the challenge is, is how can you, how can you manufacture these turbines? How can you build all the, the port facilities to have the support for that whole infrastructure? But as we look around the world, it's just, it's just happening really, really fast. You said is Mark Jacobson projecting at sixty percent of our future electricity could come from offshore wind? Yep, yep. Yeah. So I, I, I would have thought you would have said solar. Uh, you know, solar is just is, is I can't remember the exact numbers. I think it varies, of course, by country. But you know, solar was in the 15 percent range. Um, yeah. so Total solar, global electricity. Solar is is I love solar, as you know. It's our business, but it's a. Uh, yeah. It's a very soft form of electricity production. I mean, if you if you had a, a pipeline, you know, think of a pipeline that maybe has an aperture, maybe an opening, you know, maybe it's a three foot in diameter pipeline. You think about putting oil through that. You think about how many BTUs of energy are going through if it's oil. And then, oh, that's a lot, you know. And then you think about putting natural gas through it, which is much less dense. And so you have significantly less. And then you think about rushing wind through that. And again, it's way less than, you know, oil or natural gas in terms of right. its potential. And then you think about solar, these photons of light filtering through a pipeline, and it's kind of ridiculous. It's a, it's a very, very soft form. So it's not, we don't see solar um, having the kind of punch that we need. Um, you know, it's obviously a very important resource, but wind is is a very strong source of energy um, to be proven. It's very- So it has more intensity and, you know, our systems and the way that our global economy works is very intense and energy intensive. I mean, do you honestly think that renewables can replace uh, fossil fuels in powering the intensity of our current systems? Yes, I do. I do. And, uh, I think a lot of experts would agree with me that, that it's completely possible. Now, it may be more expensive, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it may take make make some time may take some time to bring that down, but but absolutely. Now, we got to go back to our neighbor Amory, Amory Levins, the founder of Rocky Mountain Institute. We've got to become more efficient as a society. We've got to tighten up our homes. We've got to you know make sure that all of our lighting systems are super efficient. So first, we shrink the amount of power that we need. And then we provide that power with renewables. Right. So we're, we've gotten to one third the electricity 
So now are we ready to move to the mobility third of the pie? Yeah, you know, I've got a I've got a bet with my with a good friend of mine back in New York that we'll all be driving EVs in five years. Uh, he told me that I was a you know crazy Californian saying that, but there's an explosion of EVs, and and you know once anybody drives an EV, they don't they don't ever go back. Um, you know, uh, EVs are getting over 300 miles in range now. There's so many competitors to Tesla. Tesla Teslas are great. They're expensive. There's all sorts of competitors. There's trucks that are being made. There's semis that are being made. You know, there's there's trains that are being shifted over to hydrogen fueled trains, which is you know function of uh, uh, using electricity to split water and to create hydrogen. So, right. So when we say mobility, we're talking about um, internal combustion engines. We're talking about airplane fuel. We're talking about train infrastructure we're talking about how we humans get around the planet yeah it's kind of funny to think of a vehicle uh, think of a plane being a vehicle or a bus or a train but you know in yes they are they're all they're all forms of moving people and moving goods and there's not a single area within that within that realm of mobility where there aren't 100 percent carbon free solutions that's fantastic. So what's the time horizon, though, on this? You know, we've sort of seen the advent of the electric top car, then it was suddenly killed, killed the electric car. Now we've had this resurgence. It feels a little bit too late in the game. But can we really kind of get our act together in the next five years like you have put money on? <laughs> yeah, I have a big hundred dollars on this. So, but I probably should up my up my ante here because I, I'm sure I'm going to win. Um, it's an explosion. You know, the number one car, the number one selling car in the world right now is an EV, right? It's the Tesla Model Y. It is the most popular car in the world. And you go to you, you look at countries like the United Kingdom, we're phasing out cars. California is, is the internal combustion engine, I should say. Um, many states have now done that. Different countries, you know, the EV EV markets are are just going wild. And why is that? Well, first, it's a it's a potentially clean technology if it's paired with renewables, but it's also a superior technology. You know, the internal combustion engine is not very efficient. A lot of its energy is given off as heat and a lot of its energy is given off as noise, you know, Uh, and, and, you know, you drive now, I've been driving an EV for what, five, six years. Uh, You know, it was entertaining. I I, I took took my EV in a number of years ago to the dealer. I said, this needs a tune up. And the guy said, the sales guy said, no, it doesn't. I said, well, I, have, I haven't given a tune-up in years. He said, well, you don't need to tune up an EV. I, I have zero maintenance on my EVs. Wow. Right? Zero maintenance. Uh, and then the cost of mobility is so much cheaper because the electric motor is about 80% efficient. The internal combustion engine is about 15% efficient, maybe wow. 20% efficient. So you wow. get an enormous efficiency gain. And then... I'm thrilled that where I live in Glendale, California, you know, where we have very large Armenian population uh, and the Armenians, the ones that I know generally are not that concerned about the environment, but they love electric vehicles. And why is that? Because they're incredibly sporty to drive. You know, they zip around. It's really fun. You've got extraordinary acceleration, extraordinary control. So, so again, I think it's not just, um, the change of fuels, but it's also 
that the technology is is just is just plain better in, in a number of ways. So it's happening really, really fast. And there are, of course, repercussions and issues of rare earth minerals that you know are, are finite resources. And and we're also working on that side of things, right? You know, because I think that does that gives the EV world a little bit of a bad rep that yeah. there are other environmental damages that go along with being powered batteries powered. There's also where is the electricity coming from? Because yeah. if it's coming from a coal fire plant, I don't know what's worse, a coal <laughs> fired electric car or a fossil fuel um, driven car. You know, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. And, and one is that you're right about the rare earth materials that uh, are used, uh, you know, in, in, in the clean energy sector. But within EVs and within batteries of EVs, there you know, really concerns about that. And, uh, you know, if we're sourcing lithium from countries that are politically unstable or we're sourcing lithium, which is a finite resource, uh, you know, that, that really could be problematic. The battery experts that I talk to are really in intriguing me because there's there is just there are the smartest people in the world are trying to figure out the better better batter, battery chemistries. And when I say better, you know, better would be, you know, cradle to grave, you know, where do you get the materials to produce them? How do you re how do you re repurpose these materials or recycle these materials? And so there's I think we're going to see my prediction is, is that, and, and I had a battery expert on the podcast a couple weeks ago who said he thinks it'll take a little bit longer than I do to transition from lithium ion, which is the predominant battery that has fueled the electric vehicle, the rise of electric vehicle, to other forms of, of batteries that are more environmentally um, benign and that their life cycle analyses are such that, right. they, that they don't have the impacts. But again, the recycling of all these materials, you know, some of the brightest minds from Tesla sort of recognize, my God, there's going to be an awful lot of old batteries out there. What's going to happen with them? So there's a lot of effort going into the recycling of batteries. And so that's, that's not just how do you recycle a battery, but how do you design a battery from the start so that at the end of its life, it can be repurposed, right? And I know Dr. Sanchez, who teaches Design of Renewable Energy course at the Harvard Extension School, um, which my sister and I both support with, is very excited about sodium ion batteries. Um, so it seems like this, there's this whole other world of innovation happening within the, um, the life cycle uh, circularity aspect of this technology. Yeah. Um, so are there any other kind of pieces to the mobility slice of the pie that you want to mention before we move to the third third I liked what you said about, um, you know, if you have an EV, but you're powering it with coal, that's not so great. Right. Um, I would, I, because I'm an anti-nuclear uh, force, I would also say that if you're, you know, if you've gotten rid of your, your oil fired, your internal combustion engine and replace it with an EV that's relying on nuclear power that you haven't, in my mind, you have not really created a long-term sustainable and safe solution. So, so we absolutely need to pair our EVs with solar and renewables. Uh, and, you know, if you've, if you've really done a good job of making your home more efficient, like we have, 
uh, and you've got some roof space. I mean, we have a solar system up on the roof, as you know, it's powering the cars. Um, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really nice combination, right? Right. So if you can kind of create this bouquet of sources and it very much depends on where you are um, and what the, you know, policies are and what the environmental conditions are. Um, some places are much more conducive to geothermal. Um, and then, you know, before we leave this subject, I just have to ask, you know, there is a pretty strong argument in the environmental space that nuclear can and must be used as a bridge energy source because though, like you said, it's not long-term sustainable safe from what we've seen, um, it does have drastically fewer carbon emissions. So from a climate change perspective, um, many people think that it's it's an absolute um, must intermediary solution. Do you think we can scale up non-nuclear renewables in time in this, what's been called this decisive decade or do we need to kind of lean back on some of this technology, which arguably is getting much safer? Well, I, I do believe that we have to leapfrog to real solutions and that we don't have time to even have these bridging fuels. But, you know, the nuclear, um, you know, I've debated nuclear for, gosh, I guess about 40 years of my life. Um, you know, I used to work for the New York Power Authority, and we had a nuclear reactor up at Indian Point Power Authority. It still does have a reactor there. If that reactor had an accident like Fukushima, the Fukushima accident, um, where and the cooling system gets knocked out for one reason or another, or as an accident like Chernobyl, you know, the entire New York City would have to be evacuated forever. I mean, for at least 40, 50, 60 years, right? So that's just a ridiculous concept, right? It's a ridiculous risk to take, I believe. Um, you know, Amory Lovins, uh, who you know, I would consider my greatest mentor, uh, you know, said using nuclear power to produce electricity is like using a chainsaw to cut butter. I mean, it is, it is, a, it is not an appropriate technology. It is a technology that is super, super high tech. And when you really look at American society, uh, you'll find out that most of our energy is wasted, right? Lights are being left on, buildings are being overcooled, overheated. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of waste in our society. So we're using a super, super dangerous, super, super high-tech resource uh, mm. in nuclear to power a grossly inefficient society. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to go there. And uh, what we're finding now is that the cost of wind and the cost of solar have come down so far that they're far less expensive. You know, we just fired up a new nuclear power plant in the United States. It's Vogdal, Vogdal down in, I think it's in Georgia. It's the most expensive power plant in the country. I mean, by far, right? But you, you know, we can install solar at a fraction of the cost, wind at a, at a, at a fraction of the cost. So these things are, these, these technologies are not only cost effective or not in only environmentally beneficial, but they're really cost effective. So I just, I did want to point out that the International Energy Agency, which is in Paris, you know, just came out with their, one of their energy outlook or energy investment reports. And, you know, this year and for the past three years, there's been more investment in renewables than there has been in fossil fuels. That's globally, right? 
right? And, and that has been going on for every dollar that goes into the fossil fuel industry today, there's a dollar 70 being spent on renewables. Put, wow. Take this, cut it in another way. There's more money going into solar right now than is going into oil. Well, and you, you made mention of that too. Like it may look more expensive now. It might look more expensive in the current economic um, framework that we're living in, but it's really pay now or pay later. I mean, we can't afford to not make this transition um, to, you know, for the survivability <laughs> of humanity and of course all, all life on planet earth. So we've gotten through two thirds of the climate change energy intensity pie, and we have now buildings and infrastructure, right? Yeah, and manufacture and industry industry so i'm thinking so i guess not trucks so much but i'm thinking you know imports and exports and um well, and, and how do you make cement which is responsible for about three percent right. of global emissions and how do you make steel which is responsible for about three percent of global emissions and and by the way um there's a lot of focus now on data centers because mm -hmm. You know, we as a society are storing more and more and more data, most of which will never be accessed, never be looked at at all. But the data in the data storage uh, is in terms of greenhouse gases is almost about to eclipse all of aviation. Can you imagine that? Think of all the planes of wow. all the fuels in aviation right now and think about these data centers. Uh, you know, which are and not to mention Bitcoin mining, which is using a tremendous amount, but those are data centers also. So so we need to rethink how do we oh, first off with, with data, do we need to collect all that data? Probably right. not. You know, what, what's a smart way of just collecting what exactly precisely we need instead of this massive brute force solution of collect everything and see if we need it later? Um, steel, you know, we're, there's, there's a lot of focus and Bill Gates has been really involved in this. Uh, on reformulating how you make steel. And there's, you know, even something called green steel and new new techniques that I'm really not particularly uh, versed in, the same with cement making. So, so there's all these new um, industrial processes that are sort of shaking the norm, shaking the way we've always done it. And people have said, well, this is the way we've always done it, so we have to continue. No, no, no. No, we need to rethink about how we make stuff do we really need that much stuff in the first place? You know, we are a highly consumeristic society. We've had that whole planned obsolescence going on in our manufacturing industry for a long time. You know, manufacturers make stuff so that it'll break in five or six years. So you got to buy something else. Well, that's ridiculous, right? We should be building durable goods. We should be repurposing things, recycling things. So, so there's a lot going on in that last third. It's the most complex third. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all about the stuff in our in our lives. Yeah, which isn't really doing us a service either, you know, having the excess and the consumerism, it doesn't lead to happiness. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, maybe buying things and consuming is a bit of a coping mechanism. Like all this feels really, really overwhelming. And we talk about some of these forces, the fossil fuel industries and lobbyists and you know, the forces that are really profiting on the um, depletion of, of the planet. And it really comes down to humans, right? Like this is, this starts with some kind of a mindset shift. 
So for folks listening who maybe aren't engineers and are going to work to go and, you know, the wind turbine, um, you know, design or manufacturing space, or maybe who aren't necessarily working, working closely with this stuff or have even too much of an understanding for it. What are, what are some things, some easy changes, lifestyle enhancements that people might consider to just get started in being part of some of these solutions? I mean, bringing it right down into your own home. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember who it was I interviewed that said that, you know, about 70% of decisions that are going to be affecting us in terms of the environment are made around the kitchen table. You mm. know, what are we going to buy? You know, are we going to buy that new 55 inch TV? You know, are we going to, what are we going to buy now? Where are we going to, what kind of car are we going to buy? Where are we going to travel? All of these decisions are you know, around a kitchen table. And I think the kitchen table is really important because it's, it's kind of there that we, we get right down to quality of life. That's, that's what, really what we're talking about. Right. We, we do need to make a shift. And I know I'm alluding your question. But we need to make a shift from thinking that our quality of life is based on how much stuff we have, right? And how much material goods that we have. That, 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 has, that needs to be replaced with how do we feel? Like, have we gotten rid of the anxiety in our lives? Are we anxious? Are we, are we comfortable with our friends and our colleagues? Do we, do we feel like we've made a, a positive contribution? You know, I just wrote um, in the last newsletter, I wrote about intentional communities. You know, which is, you know, it's about designing communities so that we feel good, that we are with neighbors, we have diversity in terms of age and gender and ethnicity and uh, in terms of land use. So we really need to start thinking about how we can, again, shift from that materialistic, in, when I say materialistic, it's incredibly energy intensive, incredibly carbon intensive. We need to shift from that to a to re recognizing that health and wellness comes from other stuff and it comes from other ways of, of leading life. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, I mean, you asked about what, 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 what in our homes, I mean, isn't it shocking how much time people are spending watching television in their homes? It, it, I mean, it's a crazy number. You're sitting in front of that TV, probably in an air conditioned room, eating junk food. How fulfilling is that, right? How about, you know, getting out for a walk? How about volunteering in your community? How about playing the guitar, making music, making art? You know, you and I know these are so much more fulfilling, right? So it's just critical that people start to become aware of what can make them really happy. And I think everybody who's a parent does not want to leave a polluted planet for their kid. So how guilty our generation already feels and will feel my generation and the generation before us already feels about the mess that we've made right no we want to make a transformation so that we have a, a society and a and an earth that's that's comfortable and healthy for people to live on so so get out there and get exercise eat, you know eat lower on the food chain you know eating lower on the people love their steak dinners and all that okay periodically that's a wonderful thing to do but it's not healthy and it's not healthy for the planet. So we need to find ways of lowering our, our carbon footprint and our nitrogen footprints, lowering our footprints that are really fulfilling for us. Yeah, I think, you know, really at the most fundamental level, you know, we are part of life 
on this planet, right? And so it's with all of this stimulation, it's easy to tune out. But I think like what you're saying is it starts with us tuning in to ourselves and to to the places that we are, to the earth around us and daring to listen. And sometimes it's uncomfortable, some of the, you know, the state of the world and the health of the planet or the lack of health. Um, but I think we each have a choice to make in terms of what what story we're committed to. Um, for me, I talk about, you know, is it this degenerative trajectory that is life depleting or is it this regenerative trajectory where we're uncovering new solutions, we're building new collaborations, we're healing old wounds. So I think it really just starts with each one of us seeing our important role in this this complex moment that we're in, um, learning about these issues. You don't need to be an expert in this stuff to get involved. Finding out you know, what is available around you the database for state incentives and what is it? Desire yeah. database for state incentives, resources, something yeah. or other. I think a renewable energy and energy. And renewable energy. You can find out in your state what 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 programs are available to you, whether it's solar or compost or rainwater collection, or just do it yourself. Um and get in touch with us because we really want to support everybody to be part of this. Um, regenerative story and economy that we're creating. Yeah, I'd like that. What else would you say to someone on the plane, Dad? Well, you know, I like this. You know, you know, eco motion has a trademark term. Uh, it's the power of the increment, and I really think that you you mentioned that each one of us sort of needs to reach into our own souls uh, and to recognize our responsibility in this global crisis that we're in, let's just call it a crisis right now. The, the flip side of that awareness is that, that each of us has the power to make change. And the incremental change, it may seem very small, but it's like it's like a sneeze or a laugh. It's it's contagious, right? It, 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 it ripple it has a rippling effect and, and it really feels good. So the power of the increment is just the opposite of this tragedy that we're experiencing that it, you know, it feels good. People recycle not because they're going to make money, but they're, they're chipping in. They're part of the solution. They're doing, they're doing their small bit. You know, I always love to, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I always love to talk about making right-hand turns, um, yeah. you know, because it's got to be the simplest thing you can do. So imagine if you're going out, you're driving, you've got to go out and you've got to run a few errands, say. Uh, well, you know, if you map your route, making a lot of left-hand turns, you're going to be stop, you're going to be waiting at stop signs or traffic lights, uh, waiting for the light to turn, uh, and it's going to take you longer to do that. And your car or, or truck, whatever it is, is going to use more fuel. Uh, so if you start making and if you start making right-hand turns, uh, it turns out that it's quicker, it's more fuel efficient, it's safer to do that. Um, and so it's just, I mean, that's just a great example of just so incredibly. Simple incredibly simple thing to do. And by the way, all the delivery services, UPS and FedEx, they all make right-hand turns. They, they, are, they are programmed to make right-hand turns because they're saving about 5% on fuel and about 5% on, on, uh, on their time and their costs. So, you know, but, but even before you go out to um, you know, start making right-hand turns, 
what about making a list? Uh, you know, a lot of people go out shopping multiple times a week to the same store. Well, you know, if you make a list, maybe you can, you know, have go only go once a week, right? So you're just being more organized can help us reduce our carbon footprint and have more time to do your Tai Chi or practice your guitar or, or whatever it is that you happen to do. So isn't that ironic that the really the way to speed up and to to fortify this new story and this new movement of solutions is actually just to slow down. <laughs> um, so thank you everyone so much for tuning into today's conversation. We will be diving much deeper into some of the topics that we just glazed over and many others in our energy crash course series. Um, my name is Sierra and I'm here with Ted Flanagan um, for Flanagan's Ecologic Podcast. And it's a delight to be with you, Father. Thanks for Thank you. I, I think you're my favorite moderator. <laughs> I think I might be your only <laughs> moderator. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening in. Thank you so much. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.